Thank you for listening to this service from Calvary of Albuquerque. It's our hope that this message will help you grow in grace and in the knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Are you ready for Bible study? I figured you were. That's good, because um, we have a chunk of it ahead of us this morning in the seventh chapter of the Gospel of John. Let's turn there. If you can believe it, what I'd like to do is begin at verse 25 and finish the chapter because of the context. It really uh, buttresses the point that I believe is trying to be made. Let's have a word of prayer before we start. Father in heaven, we come as needy people. And using the metaphor of today's study, we come as thirsty people. We always need the refreshment that comes from encountering the living Christ. As we do so, Lord, over the pages of Scripture, as we get transported back 2,000 years to the Jerusalem temple and the scene that unfolded there, I pray that not only would there be a keen interest, but there would be a spiritual transformation that takes place. And only you can affect that by your Holy Spirit. We ask that would be indeed the case. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, this is a bottle of water. And uh, we're told and we know that water is necessary for our existence. Our human life depends upon water. And as the uh, old Sprite commercial used to say, obey your thirst, we're all about that. People carry more water today than any other time because we recognize how vital water is to us. It regulates body temperature, it flushes out waste, it helps us process food, it keeps all of our tissues in good working condition. So we obey our thirst. There's a story of a man who was dying of thirst in the Sahara Desert, crawling along the sand, and suddenly a a man on a camel came by. He was a salesman, and the man dying of thirst just reached up his hand and said, water, I need water. The man on the camel said, well, I don't have any water, but I'll sell you a necktie. The dying man said, necktie, I'm dying of thirst. The man on the camel said, they're only $4. Again, the dying man said, I don't need a necktie, I'm thirsty. The man said, okay, okay, two for seven dollars, that's my lowest price. Again, the dying man said, you don't get it, that won't help me, I'm dying of thirst, I need water. The man on the camel said, I can't help you, I don't have any water, just ties, and he rode off. As the day wore on and that thirsty man kept crawling, kept crawling, finally he came to an oasis, beautiful oasis, filled with people. And he crawls and finds this beautiful, elegant restaurant, goes to the front door, sees the head waiter and says, Water! I need water! And the head waiter said, Well, sir, I'm sorry, but this is a fine restaurant. You can't get in without a necktie. 
You know, if you've ever really been thirsty, nothing matters except getting your thirst quenched. Am I right? You don't care about anything else when you're dying of thirst, let alone what's the appropriate attire for dinner that evening. We come to an interesting scene in John chapter 7, beginning in verse 25 down to the end of the chapter. It's as if you have a crowd of people who are dying of spiritual thirst in walks, in their midst, walks the source of all refreshment, makes the best offer they've ever heard, but they want to stand around and talk about neckties. Now, there is a scientific study called hydrology. Hydrology is the study of water, or more appropriately, the study of the distribution, movement, and availability of water on the earth. That's hydrology. Look at this as a study in spiritual hydrology. This unusual phenomenon of an abundance of refreshment, a waterfall, so to speak, in the midst of people. Who are dying of thirst. So the name of this message is standing by the waterfall, dying of thirst. Now, you should also know that John chapter 7 isn't the first and only time that Jesus speaks of water as the metaphor for spiritual refreshment. Back in chapter 4, the woman at the well of Samaria, you remember the story, she's drawing water out of the well and Jesus says, if you drink of this water, you will thirst again, but whoever drinks of the water that I will give will never thirst. So that same idea comes here in John chapter 7 now, as we begin in verse 25. And before we read, let me just kind of tell you how we're going to slice it up. We want to look at really only two things today. The people and the promise. The people involved, and there are three different groups of people, all with different and confusing ideas about Christ and about what they need. And then there is the promise in the midst of it. And so by giving it uh, a little more flair than just that kind of a division and wanting to divide it more applicationally, the two things we want to look at are simple. Thirsty people are confused. And number two, thirsty people are called. They're confused about refreshment. They're confused about the need for refreshment and what will refresh them. Thirsty people are confused, and there's a good reason for it having never tasted of the source of refreshment, all they can do is conjecture about it, talk about it, wonder about it. In the midst of that comes Christ. And the second point is that thirsty people are called. He calls people to drink deeply and to be refreshed and to end their thirst. In my parents' day and age, there was a song that was popular by a gal named Peggy Lee called... Is that all there is? And the refrain in the song goes like this. Is that all there is? Is that all there is? Because if that's all there is, my friends, then let's keep dancing. Let's break out the booze and have a ball. And that sort of sums up the philosophy of this world. Because everybody has gone through this life and they've asked the question, Is that all there is? And So they try a new experience and they go, Is that all there is? And they try some new relationship. And they go, now is that all there is? And it reminds me of what God said through the prophet Jeremiah in chapter 2 of Jeremiah, verse 13. 
God says, my people have committed two evils. Number one, they've forsaken me, the fountain of living waters. Number two, they have dug for themselves cisterns, broken cisterns that can hold no water. Isn't that ironic? They're standing next to an artesian well, dying of thirst, digging for water in the ground. That's the same phenomena we have here. Let's begin in verse 25 and notice how thirsty people are confused. And as I mentioned, there's three groups of people. The first group are the local citizens of Jerusalem. And this is what we find. Now, some of them from Jerusalem said, Is this not he whom they seek to kill? But look, he speaks boldly. And they say nothing to him. Do the rulers know indeed that this is truly the Christ? However, we know where this man is from. But when the Christ comes, no one knows where he is from. Then Jesus cried out as he taught in the temple saying, You both know me and you know where I am from. I have not come of myself, but he who sent me is true, whom you do not know. But I know him, for I am from him, and he sent me. Therefore they sought to take him, but no one laid a hand on him, because his hour had not yet come. And many of the people believed in him, and said, When the Christ comes, will he do more signs than these which this man has done? Okay, these are the local residents who live in Jerusalem. And the word on the street, and they know it, is that the leadership in this town are trying to find Jesus because they want to kill him. Because they say that he's claiming to be their Messiah. So they want to kill him. Now this group says, well now wait a minute, this can't be the Messiah because we know where he's from. And when the Messiah comes, nobody knows where he's from. Question, where'd they get that idea? Because it doesn't come from the Bible. It comes from an old idea that just sort of gathered steam as it went along. It was written in the Babylonian Talmud. Rabbi Zerah said, the Messiah will come unawares. Just like show up and nobody will know his background, his genealogy, or where he's from. But we know where this guy's from, so he can't be it. So they're confused about him. Now, sometime later, Trypho in the second century who opposed Christians also said, and I'm quoting, Christ, if he is indeed born and exists anywhere, is unknown and does not even know himself and has no power until Elijah comes and makes him manifest. They're confused about it. Let's look at the second group. And we go now to verse 32. This is a different group. These are the critics, the leading critics of Jesus, the Pharisees and the officers they send. The Pharisees heard the crowd murmuring these things concerning him, and the Pharisees and the chief priests sent officers to take him. Then Jesus said to them, I shall be with you a little longer, and then I will go to him who sent me. You will seek me and not find me. Where I am, you cannot come. Then the Jews said among themselves, Where does he intend to go that we shall not find him? Does he intend to go to the dispersion among the Greeks and teach the Greeks? What is this thing that he has said, You will seek me and not find me, and where I am, you can't come? These are the officers, the officials sent by the Pharisees to arrest Jesus. Jesus tells them, 
again, he's told them many times, he comes from heaven. He comes from above. The Father has sent him. And that he's going back to where he was sent. Where I'm going, you cannot come. Well, they're confused because they think, does that mean like he's leaving Jerusalem and he's going to go to the Greeks? Now, the dispersion that it mentions here in our text is the diaspora. And the diaspora are those Jewish people who have been dispersed throughout the world for a number of reasons. In this case, they're living around Greek culture, Hellenistic culture. And so they're thinking, so this guy's leaving Jerusalem. He's going to go find pockets of Greek culture where there are Jews. He's going to teach them. Again, they're totally confused about what he's meaning to do, why he's there, and what he's saying. What he's saying is, I'm going back to heaven, and for that reason, you won't find me. I think it could mean something deeper. It could also mean in that statement that there's going to come a time when you're going to seek a Savior, but the Savior whom you are now rejecting will be gone from your midst, and that opportunity will be too late. You know, there is such a thing as a passing opportunity. That's why the Bible always encourages us to make choices now, today. While we have the opportunity, don't let it slip by. Classic passage, 2 Corinthians 6, Behold, now is the accepted time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. Now's the time. Here's the offer. Take it. There's an old adage that goes like this. There is a time we know not when, a line we know not where, that marks the destiny of man betwixt sorrow and despair. There is a line, though by man unseen, once it has been crossed, even God in all his love hath sworn that all is lost. Here is your opportunity. Here I am. You're living. You're breathing. You can make choices. Make them now before it's too late. There's a third third group that we want to look at. Go down now to verse 40 and we'll begin our reading there. This is the rest of the crowd, the lingering crowd. Not just Jerusalemites, not just officers and Pharisees. There are people from all over the world, so it's a mixed bag. Therefore, many from the crowd, when they heard this saying, said, Truly, this is the prophet. Others said, This is the Christ. But some said, Will the Christ come out of Galilee? Three different opinions in those verses. Has not the Scripture said that Christ comes from the seed of David and from the town of Bethlehem where David was? So there was a division of the people because of him. Now some of them wanted to take him, but no one laid hands on him. Then the officers came to the chief priests and Pharisees who said to them, Why have you not brought him? Now watch this. These officials were sent to arrest Jesus. They come back empty-handed. This is what they told the Pharisees. The officers answered, No man ever spoke like this man. And the Pharisees answered them, Are you also deceived? Have any of the rulers of the Pharisees believed in him? But this crowd that does not know the law is accursed. Nicodemus, he who came to Jesus by night, being one of them, said to them, Does our law judge a man before it hears him and knows what he's doing? They answered and said to him, Are you also from Galilee? Search and look, for no prophet has arisen out of 
Galilee. Do you think they like Galileans? No, they don't. And everyone went to his own house. Now talk about a cacophony of confusing opinions. I just looked through this chapter and I wrote down all the different opinions about Christ. Here they are. He's a prophet. He's the Messiah. He's just a good man. He's a deceiver. He's a Galilean. He's a great speaker. Different opinions about him. That's why in verse 43, and it's key, now there was a division among the people because of him. Schisma is the Greek word. A split decision. Due to the confusion that they had, nobody could make up their mind really about who he was. Now, did you notice that they mentioned he was from Galilee? But at the same time they go, can't be the Messiah because the Messiah must be born in Bethlehem. And Jesus was born in Bethlehem. But they're not, they don't know that. They just know he's from Galilee. Okay, so, so here's what I discovered. I'm going through this. A very even slight, just a little bit of incentive could have solved the problem. All they would have to do is just ask a few people questions because Bethlehem's five miles away from Jerusalem. It was pretty public knowledge. They didn't know that knowledge. All they had to do is just a little bit of research and they would have said, oh, wow, he was really born in Bethlehem and he's from the lineage of King David. Huh. And this reminds me of so many people who when you talk to them about God, especially Jesus, they go, well, you know, I've always been interested, but I'm sort of agnostic. That's sort of everybody's favorite word. Ooh. And, uh, and what I mean is I've heard these things, I've heard those things, but, you know, I just really haven't made up my mind. Here's the deal. Just a little bit of incentive in their lives to do a little bit of research could solve the problem. Honestly, I'm challenging you if you're teetering about the person of Jesus Christ, do a simple little bit of research on the historicity, the veracity of the New Testament documents, and specifically the claims of Christ. The evidence is out there. You will discover it's not only ample evidence, it'll be overwhelming evidence for you to trust in and believe in Christ. Now, did you notice in verse 52... They made a statement of which they were wrong about. Look, search and look. No prophet has arisen out of Galilee. Sounds pretty authoritative, doesn't it? Search, look, check it out. There's been no prophet out of Galilee. So when I read this, it makes me think, the guys who said it, why don't you search and look? Because you ever heard of a guy named Jonah? Jonah was a prophet who came out of Galilee. Gath Heifer. He was born in Gath Heifer, five miles from Nazareth, where Jesus was raised, incidentally. Oh, search and look. There's been no prophet that's come out of Galilee. Got that answer wrong. We have an expression in English. There are none so blind as those who will not see. There are none so deaf as those who will not hear. There's some people, when you talk to them about spiritual things, it's Fingers in the ears and that's how they live their lives. They don't want any other input. And they're thirsty. Here's a group of people, a few different groups of people. All of this confusion reveals their thirst, their messianic thirst. They have longed for a deliverer. 
Now here's something I want you to know. It's true historically. After the captivity, when they came back from Babylon and settled in Israel again, there was a growing messianic thirst. Deliver. We want to deliver. We want somebody. That Messiah promised. We want him to come. And then when the Romans occupied their land, which is the setting here, that thirst heightened to, I'm going to say, almost a fever pitch. There's a book called uh, The History of Messianic Speculation in Israel. Long title. By a rabbi, Rabbi uh, Abba Hallel Silver. And he says, and I quote, Prior to the first century CE of the Christian era, Messianic interest was not excessive. But the first century, especially the generation before the destruction of the second temple, that's this exact time, witnessed a remarkable outburst in Messianic emotionalism. So that's what I want you to understand about this crowd of people, officers, Jerusalemites, visitors. There was this heightened thirst and expectation. The Messiah, the Messiah, we want him to come. But who is he? In steps the Messiah. In their midst, in the temple. And they're looking at each other, talking neckties. When he offers them the water of life. Just think back one chapter. One chapter, chapter 6. That group in Galilee, some of them are here at the feast, wanted to take Jesus by force and make him a what? King, deliverer, their messianic king. Jesus didn't come to be a king, a politician. He came to be their savior, first of all. But they're so thirsty that I'm going to say they're dehydrated. I don't know if you know about dehydration, but it affects the way people think and how they react. I did a little bit of study this week and, 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 and followed the process of a person who is really thirsty and thirsting to death. Stage number one, eudipsia. Eudipsia is the normal, everyday, common thirst. It's where you go, I'm thirsty. You recognize you need some water. Now, if you don't get water and you keep that up, you'll enter phase number two. Hyperdipsia. And these are intense, though temporary, bouts of extreme thirst. If you still don't get water over a period of time, you'll enter into stage number three, which is polydipsia. This is a sustained, intense craving. But it's the stage, and this is why it's called polydipsia. It's the stage at which a person will drink anything to quench their thirst. They'll look at ocean water, knowing it's salt, and they'll drink it because they become almost delusional, wanting to quench that thirst. These people are dehydrated. They're willing to gravitate to any um, idea of what their Messiah ought to be based on folklore, etc., etc., having never tasted from the refreshing well of Christ. All they can do is, in their confusion, speculate. Well, things haven't changed for 2,000 years. Think of all of the different wells people are willing to drink out of to satisfy the thirst that every human being has. Money. If I get enough money, I'll be satisfied. Sex. If I have enough sex, I'll be really happy. Status. Substance. Drugs. Alcohol. People do these things to, to kill the pain and to bring satisfaction. Ironically, 
None of them ever do bring satisfaction, do they? In fact, not only do they not satisfy, they're poisonous. They create a deeper, intense longing that that experience just accentuates but never satisfies. It's easy to prove. Ask the drug addict, somebody who's now addicted to drugs, who started taking them just because it felt so good. Now they're addicted. Hey, how's that satisfaction thing going for you? Not too good. Ask the alcoholic addicted to that substance. Ask, ask the sex addict or the person addicted to power or money who's chasing that rabbit. Hey, how's that satisfaction thing going for you? Not too well. Max Lucado tells us why in his fine book, The Applause of Heaven. He writes, False fountains pacify our cravings with sugary swallows of pleasure. That's so descriptive. Sugary swallows of pleasure. But there comes a time when pleasure doesn't satisfy. There comes a dark hour in every life when the world caves in and we're left trapped in the rabble of reality, parched and dying. We are very thirsty, but not for fame, possession, passion, or romance. We've drunk from those pools. They are salt water in the desert. They don't quench, they kill. No, we're thirsty for a clean conscience. We crave a clean slate. We yearn for a fresh start. The problem is the treasures of the earth don't satisfy. The promise is the treasures of heaven do satisfy. So number one is the crowd, all those people. Now let's look at the promise. And that is found in verse 37. Thirsty people are called. On the last day, that great day of the feast, okay, stop right there. I've got to give you the setting so that you understand the impact of what you're about to read. Because otherwise you just read and go, yeah, yeah, okay, cool. But, but you've got to get the impact. Here's the setting. It's the feast of what? Tabernacles or booths. It's a seven-day feast. It lasted all week long. Every day of that feast, every morning, thousands of people go up to the temple area, the courts, and they'd be met by a priest. Now, the people, when they came, they had in their left hand a piece of citrus fruit, symbolic of the fruitful land that God gave them. In their right hand, they had branches of three different trees, a palm branch, a willow branch, and a myrtle branch, or pieces of it, emblematic of the stages of the wilderness wanderings before they got into the promised land. So citrus fruit, foliage. Thousands of them are there. They're singing songs. The priest meets them. He has a golden pitcher. They all take a procession from the temple area down to the pool of Siloam. The priest takes the golden pitcher, dips it in the water of the pool of Siloam, marches back up to the temple. They're singing psalms. He takes the water and pours it on the stones of the altar. And as they witness this, the crowd sings in unison... A passage from Isaiah chapter 12 that says, With joy you will draw waters from the well of salvation. Now the pouring of the water was symbolic of the water that God gave from the rock itself in the desert. Remember the story? So that was our daily routine. But on the last day of the feast, the final day, it says that great day of the feast. See what it says in verse 37? That great day? Something different happened. 
What happened is the people would meet at the temple, priests would meet them there, they'd go to Siloam, they'd get the water, they'd come back, they'd do the deal, but the priest would march around the altar not once, but seven times on the last day. Seven times. Why seven times? Well, they marched around Jericho seven times before they entered the land. As they were entering in, that was the first place. So seven times around the altar, they're singing psalms, fruit in one hand, branches in the other hand, singing Isaiah 12, with joy you will draw water from the well of salvation. But this time, on the sixth march around the altar, the priest with a golden pitcher was met by another priest with a pitcher of wine, water and wine. Wine symbolic of joy. God has given us joy, refreshment. Then the priest with a pitcher of water would ascend the steps of the altar. As he would get up and start walking every step, the people shouted louder and louder. And then he would pause at the top and lift the pitcher of water up slowly. And with every little millimeter of movement, the crowd shouting would get louder and louder and louder until the pitcher was at the very top that that priest could reach. Then there was a hush over the crowd. Okay? That's the last day of the feast. That's what's happening. So can you picture that in your mind? Picture goes up, picture goes up. There's a hush now over the crowd. Now let's read. On that last day, the great day of the feast, Jesus stood and cried out saying, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Can you imagine how powerful at that exact moment Spiritually and psychologically, the impact that would have on the crowd. He who believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. But this he spoke concerning the Spirit, whom those believing in him would receive, for the Holy Spirit was not yet given, because Jesus was not yet glorified. Please notice it doesn't say that Jesus stood up and said something to them. He didn't say anything. He cried out. Kradzo is the word. It's the cry of a raven. It's when somebody has to shout so loud as to command attention. There's a big crowd there. He didn't have a PA system. And that hush over the crowd has fallen, but there's a huge crowd. And so Jesus cries out, If anyone is thirsty, all the heads go, and they're staring at him. He has commanded their attention. I love this fact that Jesus commands the scene. He's not some anemic, milquetoast Messiah. He has a loud voice and he commands and controls the situation. And in that, he makes a promise. Thirsty people are called, number one, to take the plunge and to get refreshed. Look at the promise in verse 37. If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. There's three words that sum it up. Thirst, come, drink. First thing that is necessary is you have to realize you're thirsty. Because only thirsty people drink water. Only people who know they have a spiritual need ever seek to get it refreshed. You know, there's a lot of people that go through their lives and every experience they they encounter every day, they're not satisfied. They're just thirstier. They're thirstier and thirstier. Look at life. And honestly, there's some people, life is just insipid and bland and tasteless and whatever. They've come to that point. 
You know, there, there was a point in my life when after moving to New Mexico, I got so used to the food here that no other food would, would quite do it. You, anybody know what I'm talking about? So I first came here and the food was like way too hot. I couldn't eat this stuff. Then it's like a transformation took place. This food is so good, you go anywhere else and every other food is boring. Where's the chili? Where's the red or green? It got so bad, I kid you not, I'd travel with little bottles of Tabasco sauce or or chili powder because I had to have the kick. Food just didn't taste good. It was bland. Life is bland. People are thirsty. You have to recognize that thirst. Second word, come. If anyone is thirsty, let him come. Here's Jesus. He's saying, I'm here. Now come. Make the move. You've come to this ceremony in the temple. Now come to me. Third word is drink. This speaks of receiving Christ personally, not ceremonially, not superficially, personally. When you drink, it's personal. I easily demonstrate that. That didn't do you any good. But it sure tasted great to me. Because drinking stuff is personal, right? The idea of drinking Christ or, or drinking from this living water is is personally coming and placing your faith in Him. If I stand here and I'm holding this water and I announce to you, man, I'm so thirsty. I'm really thirsty. Eventually you're going to say, drink. Because having this water and not drinking does me no good whatsoever. You may have come, but are you drinking? Are you personally taking in that refreshment? You recognize you're thirsty, you've come, but are you drinking? And notice anyone can do it. Notice it says in verse 37, if anyone thirsts. I love this. There's no social, educational issues that are involved. Young, old, anyone. Male, female, anyone. Educated, uneducated, anyone. Anyone is thirsty. Let him come to me and drink. Look at the last two verses. I'm going to show you something that I think may surprise you. I say surprise you because this is where most people end their thinking. They're thinking, yes, I've heard this before. If I come to Jesus Christ, I'll be satisfied. And that's sort of where we preach the gospel and stop. Come to Christ and you'll be satisfied. Oh, friend, that's just the beginning. We just have gotten started. It's so much more than about you being satisfied. Verse 38, he who believes in me, Show of hands, on a show of hands right now, how many in this room believe in Christ? Show show me your hands. Okay, great. Put them down. That means this is for all of us. He who believes in me, as the scripture says, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Wow. Did you get that? The promise isn't just that we'll be blessed. The promise is that we'll become a blessing to others. Here's the point. Don't just be a gulper. Be a gusher. See, God never intended that we just store up this pool of living water, salvation truth, because it'll stagnate. Living, flowing, abundant streams that come out from us. 
Now, this is where modern Christianity, in my opinion, is highly lacking because modern evangelical Christianity has made it all about your sad, poor life and you need to come to Jesus and really live the life and really be satisfied. And it's almost as if some people believe Jesus never really said, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all things will be added to you. It's as if some people believe, he said, seek first to be personally contented and personally satisfied. And if you have any time at all left over, and it's not too terribly inconvenient for any of you, could you please do something for the kingdom of God? Right? Now he said, come to me and be satisfied. That's just the first step. Now come and be a conduit to export the water that has gone into your life, into the lives of others. You know, there's three kinds of faith. Three kinds of faith. Let's see which one you are. First of all, there's faulty faith. Faulty faith is the faith of the unbeliever. He hasn't personally committed himself to Christ. He may believe there's a God. He may believe there's a Christ. So he's there like the crowd, confused. That's faulty faith. It's the faith of the demons. Doesn't the Bible say the demons believe and do what? They tremble. So every demon in hell knows God is real, knows Jesus Christ is the answer, knows that if you come to him by faith, your sins will be forgiven. They know that. That's faulty faith. They didn't done anything about it. Number two, there's firm faith. That's where you trust not in yourself, not in your religious stuff, but you trust wholly in Christ and his finished work for your salvation. Now you're on a firm foundation. That's called justification. That's firm faith. So you have faulty faith, you have firm faith. Every single Christian has firm faith. If you truly believe in Christ, that's firm faith. But there's a third. It's called flowing faith. Flowing faith. That is where the Holy Spirit empowers you to pass on this refreshing gift to other people. So here's my question. Do you have flowing faith? Are you saved? I'm saved. you satisfied? Very. Great. Now what are you doing with it? Are you sent? Are there rivers of living water? Are you showing that satisfaction to other people? And they go, I I want that. In fact, I'm going to submit this to you. I believe this with all my heart. Your satisfaction, contentment level, never gets higher than when you make it not about you and all about him and all about his kingdom. You become an instrument to lead others to Christ. The, The joy level is outrageous when you're part of that enterprise. There's a commercial, and you've seen it, I know. I I can't escape it. It's cleverly written, though it's a beer commercial. It's a Dos Equis commercial. It's called The Most Interesting Man in the World. Has anybody ever seen it? You can't escape it. It's everywhere. And here's this bearded guy, sort of middle-aged, and he's the most interesting man in the world. And and they say, the most interesting man in the world. His personality is so magnetic, he can't even carry credit cards. You know, these outlandish claims. Or, the most interesting man in the world. Even his enemies carry his phone number as their emergency contact. (laughs) And the most interesting man in the world in this commercial always ends every commercial by saying, Stay thirsty, my friends. That's the big tagline. Stay thirsty, my friends. Here is the most refreshing man in the world, Jesus. And he doesn't say, Stay thirsty, my friends. He says, Get your thirst quenched. My friends, I'll quench your thirst and you will be satisfied and be satisfying to other people.
You may have been drinking from every conceivable well out there and wholly unsatisfied. Standing next to a waterfall, dying of thirst. I close with a little um, bit from C.S. Lewis's book, The Silver Chair. You know I love C.S. Lewis and his Chronicles of Narnia, the book, The Silver Chair, hosts Aslan the lion and a girl named Jill, and Jill sees Aslan, freaks out, and runs away, like a lot of people run away from Christ. She's running away. She runs so far, so hard, that she's dying of thirst. She's out in the forest somewhere. Aslan is there. Here's the story. Are you not thirsty, said the lion. I'm dying of thirst, said Jill. May I, could I, would you mind going away while I drink? said Jill. The lion answered this only by a look and a very low growl. As Jill gazed at this momentous bulk, she realized she might as well have asked the whole mountain to move aside for her convenience. The delicious rippling noise of the stream was driving her nearly frantic. Will you promise not to do anything to me if I do come, said Jill. I make no promise, said the lion. Jill was so thirsty that without noticing it, she had come a step nearer. Do you eat girls, she asked. (laughs) I have swallowed up girls and boys, women and men, kings, emperors, cities, and realms, said the lion. He didn't say it as if he were boasting or as if he were sorry or as if he were angry. He just said it. I dare not come and drink, said Jill. Then you will die of thirst, said the lion. Oh, dear, said Jill, coming another step nearer. I suppose I must go look for another stream then. There is no other stream, said the lion. It never occurred to Jill to disbelieve the lion. No one had ever seen the stern face could ever do that. And her mind suddenly made itself up. It was the worst thing she ever had to do. But she went forward to the stream, knelt down, and began scooping up the water in her hand, It was the coldest, most refreshing water she ever tasted. Here's the message. If you're going to come to drink of refreshing water, you come on the lion's terms. You come on Aslan's terms. You come on Christ's terms. Here he is in their midst. I am the living water. If you drink, you'll be refreshed, but you must thirst. You must come, and you personally must drink. Father in heaven, we know this metaphor clearly means to appropriate Christ by faith, to believe in Him, to put our whole being personally in His hands, and to come to Him by faith as Savior and Master. Father in heaven, I pray for anyone in this room who has never done that, whatever facade they may have hidden behind, whatever well they may have taken a drink from or tried to find satisfaction in, they wake up thirsty every single day. Now we have a promise, not only of refreshment, but a promise of possibility that our life could take on a whole new meaning with a whole new enterprise, that we ourselves could be conduits of the most important life-refreshing truth ever, if we would only let that happen. I pray that many of your own people this morning who trust in you have firm faith 
would now have flowing faith. And I pray for those whose faith is faulty and not firm, and they've not trusted in Christ. They've trusted in themselves or in religion or in their intellect or in a person besides Jesus. I pray there would be a surrender to Him. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to this service from Calvary of Albuquerque. If you would like more information about what you've heard in this message or about Calvary of Albuquerque, please visit our website at www.calvaryabq.org. If you have made a decision to follow Christ or would like someone to pray for you, please leave a message with our prayer watch line at 505-344-3658. Thank you and God bless.